Welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we discuss our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. Uh, as you may have noticed, uh, this is not your normal host. This is Kevin. And uh, I'm joined by someone very special uh, in place of Maggie today. And who's that? Hi there, everybody. This is Bay Bayard. And uh, it's it's longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, it's good to be here with the Gator. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited about uh, today's episode. It's a little bit of a goofer. I mean, like, obviously, Kevin and I aren't as knowledgeable about all things Austin as Kristen and Maggie are. But we did want to, for a kind of a fun departure, do an episode with uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. We, we were kind of thinking about how to approach this, because uh, clearly it's not your average episode. And Kristen was kind enough and enough of a pro, really, to realize that we may be in over our heads, I don't know, a little bit, and put together a list of questions that we could work through that kind of split into different parts. I think that's a good idea. My original proposal to her when she and Maggie asked us about this was that we do Durst impressions, which was <laughs> what Limp Biscuit meant to us in our youth. <laughs> so I think her giving us these questions is probably a good idea. And as you said, um, we're obviously not the experts that Maggie and Kristen are. Um, you know, they're the charming, intelligent hosts of this show, and we're going to be like two monkeys poking at a laptop here. Yeah, so, we're gonna we're gonna take you down into our sweaty, hairy man cave, the the bro zone here of um, uh, Austin analysis, and um, it's gonna get a little uncomfortable. It's, yeah. I mean, gentle listeners, we are, we are not so gentle. I, and I think it's finally time that you know men had a chance at the microphone. Yeah, to to talk about our feelings. This is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is the time where we really get to open up and um, and do it through the lens of Austin. So obviously, I'm kidding about men talking. We talk all the time about our feelings. Um, and this is just letting you sort of have a peek inside. Yeah. So, um, well, without any further ado, let's uh, keep it rolling, rolling, rolling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, start off with a few, like, I guess a little bit more personal questions. I can go ahead and read the first one on the list when we'll just ping pong it back and forth. Yep. But um, the first question, dear listeners, what has it meant for you to have a significant other who loves Jane Austen? It's kind of a two-parter because it then goes on to say, how were you first introduced to her? And were you afraid to be roped into Austen love? Kevin, um, go ahead and take this uh, first and then I'll, I'll do my own little follow-up. Okay, absolutely. Um, so I would say, you know, what it means to for me to have a significant other who loves Jane Austen is similar in a lot of ways to having a significant other that is particularly interested in any other type of art. So, you know, there's nothing about it that was particularly scary or off-putting about it. And I think like other art, there's also a lot to unpack here. So um, having a significant other that likes Jane Austen um, has given me uh, the opportunity to explore some art literature that I hadn't um, had the chance to look at before, or I guess had the chance and didn't take advantage of, um, and learn a lot from that and enjoy that. And I was first introduced to her by Kristen in terms of actually reading anything. You know, I'd obviously heard of her before as an author, but, you know, uh, even when Kristen and I started dating, you know, as you 
talk about what topics are of interest to each other and, you know, what do you like? What don't you like? Um, Austin came up and, you know, Kristen encouraged me to, to, you know, see the uh, Pride and Prejudice BBC miniseries as a start. Um, and then after that, I got into reading some of the books. And I wasn't afraid of being roped into it, as, as the question says. You know, I think some people have this preconceived notion of Austin as this kind of romance in bonnets. I didn't necessarily have that coming in. I didn't have a strong negative or positive impression either way. Um, I think the only thing that would probably have much of a first impression at all then is what you're saying. (laughs) That's exactly right. And uh, (laughs) yeah, my first impression was meh. Um, So, uh, (laughs) you know, it didn't scare me to get into Austin and learn more about it. I think there's this general sort of social expectation a lot of times when you're uh, younger and you're reading is that female authors are for women to read and not for men to read. And uh, so that may have stopped me at some point from just kind of opening up the books. But, you know, that was my loss for years. Well, yeah. Or that reading something that that has a romantic element, because really there's so much more to Austin than that kind of makes you a softy or something. I actually, I didn't know if you, you, uh, we're we're finished with your background, uh, and I don't want to like jump in here and take over. Uh, but I I was looking at this question and thinking that honestly, Kristen probably was like leveling this at me to a, a certain. Uh, I'm not going to you know like say that I was uh, uh, one of the haters who would be getting a middle finger or, <laughs> or anything, but kind of okay to do things in in order, right? What is it meant for you to have a significant other who loves Jane Austen? It, like you said, it's it's like a significant other that loves anything. And I think a lot of men would find that their significant other does love Jane Austen. I mean, there's, there's not really a reason not to. Um, I think that there's a lot in modern society where individuals kind of get bogged down in the bonnets and the speech patterns and the costumes and that sort of thing and don't look past to see the story and so that kind of like colors things it's it's almost like if you're a guy it's not cool or manly to like Jane Austen and so I think um, until I really read Austen I was just working with this cultural baggage you know um, I was probably first introduced to Austin in a similar way uh, as you, Kevin. I mean, I remember seeing Sense and Sensibility with my parents, the the Ang Lee version, uh, and you know, it was good. Um, Ang Lee is really good at some of the the stuff going on underneath the surface of the characters, which you really need for some of Austin's characters. But I didn't really read any Jane Austen. Uh, I I did it of my own volition, actually, Um, just, you know, like kind of out of the blue when it was one of the first things that I read on my Kindle. Uh, And maybe it's partly because it's it's I don't want to say like necessarily in the public domain. I I don't know what the the is for books that have been out for a while, but uh, but I could read it for free. And we're all looking for great deals. And Austin is a great (laughs) deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It's definitely bang for your buck, right? Um, yeah. And so anyway, I, I'd i read it and it was much better than I had gone into thinking because you have all this cultural baggage. 
I wasn't afraid to be roped into Austin love in terms of my relationship with Maggie because I'd already like self-initiated, if that makes sense. Yeah, you uh, you had already started reading it. Um, yeah, I, I inoculated sure myself. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not a good way of. Well, maybe for zombies it is. Yeah, no, you uh, you got a taste of that free Austin, so the sickness couldn't get you. <laughs> Are you down with the sickness? No, that's not I, red dirt. That's disturb. No, there's oh a God. lot. There's oh. a lot of terrible new metal that runs together. In my <laughs> that um, I mean, we can definitely get into. <laughs> And in fact, I would today I would suggest Maggie and Kristen should give us at least five minutes to talk about uh, late '90s new metal on every podcast. Oh, I mean, I I could always bring up that that Hoobastank, uh, <laughs> uh opener for the the Incubus concert that I went to again. Uh, I'm sure the listeners really want to hear about that again, <laughs> but uh, they just did, I guess. Well, I think there's a niche to fill here with Hoobastank <laughs> stories that aren't aren't out there. Um, <laughs> They haven't captured the zeitgeist for a while, but I think they're coming back. So, Lincoln <laughs> Park is, is putting out an, a new album, right? So everything that's old is new again. That's true. Um, and someday there will be, you know, people in flying cars that will get free versions of public domain Lincoln Park songs that yeah, will open up their minds to new art the way that, you know, Kindle's free Austin opened up your mind to Austin. I can't wait to, you know, like just be floating around in the the internet with my like haptic gloves and my uh, my VR goggles on just like blasting drowning pool right <laughs> that is a corn a, a dystopian victory <laughs> you've outlined yeah it's it's really bleak yeah uh, should I get on to question number two please yeah take it away all right so this one's a little bit easier. It's a little less introspective. Um, so we can we can put up our emotional shields again. Uh, do you have a favorite Austin book or movie and why? Well, um, while I have listened to Kristen and uh, Margaret on the, the podcast uh, speak over the books, I mean, like the only one that I've really read is um, Pride and Prejudice. And, you know, like I Again, I can just like feel people pulling away. Um, so maybe I should turn this over to you. I mean, I really do like uh, Pride and Prejudice. And so that's that's what I would, in several different adaptations uh, of, of Austin's novel, but at the risk of losing them more listeners, yeah. <laughs> I probably should swing it over your way, Kevin. Yeah, I am, um, and and hopefully the listeners are um, willing to deal with with two people who are talking with the authority of someone who just skimmed a Wikipedia article uh, <laughs> on their on their favorite uh, subject. So, you know, on on the book side, I've actually only read um, Pride and Prejudice and Mansfield Park. On the movie mm -hmm. side, I've seen a lot more. Um, I've seen multiple versions of, I think um every every major book in terms of adaptations um so on the book side between mansfield park and uh, pride and prejudice um i love mansfield park um however pride and prejudice would be my favorite there because i think the humor speaks to me um i think uh mansfield park is a a great book um and it has a lot to sort of teach us but the humor in Pride and Prejudice um, is something that I don't see as much in Mansfield Park. Um, and so I was drawn a little bit more to Pride and Prejudice as a book. 
uh, for the movie adaptations, I think the BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth and, and Jennifer Ely is fantastic. Um, it's obviously well cast. I think, you know, those are the, the actors who people think of as often the definitive kind of versions of those characters. Right. And so, you know, there, there's other, you know, adaptations. And it could be that sometimes whatever adaptation you were exposed to first becomes the defining version. Um, so, you know, maybe someone really loves the Kira Knightley uh, Pride and Prejudice, if that was the first one they saw. But um, for me, there's, you know, too much cut out of that. Um, and I think yeah, um, the, the BBC adaptation um, had the length to kind of stretch its legs a little bit more um, and get into the story in, in ways that make the, the emotional payoffs um, more uh, meaningful and also allows them to keep a lot of the humor in there of these interactions between who might be, you know, secondary or tertiary characters. Well, and you raise a good point, you know, and listening to you talk over not only the books, but the the films and adaptations made me realize, well, actually, I have seen quite a, a bit. I've, I've seen, you know, um, Ang Lee's uh, Sense of Sensibility. Um, I have seen the Kira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice. I think I've seen another version of Pride and Prejudice, which is kind of escaping my mind right now. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow in Emma, which for some reason I always kind of forget about i've seen uh bridget jones's diary um which of course you know like isn't really pride and prejudice but it's inspired by of course i've also seen you know pride and prejudice and zombies and we will talk a little bit more about how much we liked or disliked that uh you know uh, as this this podcast goes on well that's an um, interesting point is that these are kind of malleable but, stories that um are being updated in different ways and sort of used as the DNA for for other stories so um you know Pride and Prejudice with Bridget Jones Diary as you're talking about or um Emma for Clueless and and you know so the structures Oh my god um, yeah you're right <laughs> of course yeah how could i forget it yeah, in some ways, that's, you know, one of the best adaptations, um, because it's, it really gets at the kind of heart and character of that, but in a way that was, uh, you know, totally of its own time. Um, Very accessible to, you know, like hip 90s valley kids or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Ever. Um, you, you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming that's how kids in California acted at the time, but that's all I know. And now it's a, a beautiful little um, time capsule. <laughs> my gosh, you just like blew my mind. Yeah, I, of course I remembered, but you know, like I think, I think there's a real reliance these days on adaptations to be as faithful to the source material as possible, which is not always a good thing. Um, some things that work very well in a novel don't work very well on the screen. I think Austin um, in particular can sometimes be hard to adapt because there's a lot going on inside characters' heads, things that they think about each other. You're usually seeing the story from one person's point of view. Uh, I, I mean, like, that's definitely the case in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, so, in fact, in a movie like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, you know, like, we get details about characters that other people aren't privy to. Um, and we can talk about that when we get to the movie. But uh, I, I know we've spent a while on this. So uh, would you like to, I can go ahead and dive into number three, uh, unless you have some more to say. Okay, 
let's uh let's open this bad boy uh is there anything that you have taken from austin that has influenced your personal philosophy or worldview or that matches up with your morals and values that's interesting yeah this is a this is a tough question i had to think about this one uh, a lot when I, I first read it and i i can't come up with an example of something that would be you know a very specific kind of um one-off principle or, or something uh, that has changed my, you know, worldview or, or morals. Um, Is Austin your co-pilot, Kevin? I do. Yes, I have. I have that bumper <laughs> sticker on the car. I have um, these "What Would Jane Do" stickers that I put on. Uh, oh yeah, WWJD. You don't even have to change it. You just wear that around, and people yeah. think you're. Yeah. People know. <laughs> and, and that made an appearance in the Jane Austen book club in what could be the worst scene. Um, of all time, uh, for, for an Austin-related um, uh, piece of art. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to think of a, a specific thing, but I would say in in reading Austin um, and in uh, in particular Mansfield Park, I think it is one that, uh, you know, has an effect on your philosophy and worldview. Um, there's this emphasis on being a good person and making the right and moral decision. That's not always easy. And so Mansfield Park has these characters, um, the Crawfords who, you know, sometimes as a reader, you want to have them be your, you know, protagonist. Oh, they're, they're fun. And they're, you know, a little bit scandalous. Whereas Fanny Price can seem on the surface, just kind of like a stick in the mud, but you realize that she's really a strong person. You know, she has this strong sense of who she is and this, uh, morality to her. Um, and I think Austin wants to reward that and, and sort of draw on relief that um, these are personal qualities that are valuable um, and important to possess. Um, but at the same time, she doesn't kind of draw the Crawfords as villains. So I think if I were to take something from that, it would be that it's important to try to have kind of moral reasoning within yourself and kind of step outside and not to try to do the easy thing to try to think about what you're doing and is it right and does it align with with your values um, but at the same time being accepting of other people who may be a little bit different and not being so harsh that you just characterize them as a villain and that you understand them a little bit more so um, I, I took a lot out of that and I think you know in my own life I, I try to be uh, someone who reflects on my own actions um, and sort of uh, intense and, and, and tries to make sure that, um, that I'm making a decision that aligns with my conception of morality, not something that's just convenient. Man, maybe we do need some of these bracelets because like that, uh, that that's actually is, is a kind of a WWJD thing, right? You know, yeah. like um, let's, uh, let's look at, at our own behavior and, and how we can improve and, and lead a, a moral life. I mean, like you difficult there. And I, I mean, I'm right there with you. I don't, I have to think a little bit about whether I consider um, Austin and her work, you know, like morality plays because bad things do happen to good people in those stories, you know? Yeah. It's not simplified uh, as, you know, good person, a good person gets everything, bad person gets, you know, uh, punished. But, but I do think that there's an emphasis, we side with the good characters. I mean, like, they, I can't, 
I was trying to think if there's a, a character really that's like a, a lovable villain, you know, like, oh, that scoundrel, but like, isn't he the best or, or is she the best or, or something, uh, you know, like uh, people tend to have strong reactions to some of these characters. I, I think one of the strengths of Austin is this nuance. There's nobody that's necessarily like black and white. Do you know what I mean? Um, and even the villains of these stories, you don't get the sense that they're irredeemable. And I think that's true to life. You know, everyone's a mix of, of good and bad. And, and um, sometimes a characteristic can be bad enough or a personality trait that it does prevent you from being truly happy, if you will. And I, I think she captures that um, mix that everyone has in real life and is trying to draw that out. Yeah, I mean, um, so again, going back to this question, is there anything you've taken from Austin that influenced your personal philosophy or worldview or that matches up with your morals and values? I don't think that I'm there, you know, like on on the Austin level, because I it, it seems like more like something to strive for, you know, like uh, remember that maybe your political opponents aren't, aren't demons or something, you know, like that, that uh, the, the people that you disagree with on the internet or something, you know, like aren't just terrible, irredeemable folks or something, you know, like. Uh, well, we have to remember though, that Austin did not have the chance to read YouTube comments. So. Yeah, exactly. I she might've had well, a very different impression. Oh, she would have slayed. Are you kidding me? Austin's Twitter feed she absolutely, um, you know, if she had lived in a different time like now, um, where uh, she has such a keen perception of people um, and now, you know, would have probably the opportunity in today's world to be more sort of out in front of her art rather than, you know, um, sort of the limitations that were placed on women back then. There's still many today, but she would have the chance to be out front of it more. The ability she has to kind of understand people and poke at them. Um, I think she absolutely would have been uh, someone who uh, would have an amazing, you know, Twitter feed or, or series of posts about people that get you sort of to laugh, but also understand something in addition to writing her books. Um, so uh, we, we, we missed that. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure we're not the first people to think of what would Austin look like in a modern <laughs> context. And it, it does seem a shame to reduce that to she would have a good Twitter feed. So I should No, probably... yeah, no, I'm not trying to trivialize yeah. her, her genius, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, it can't be summed up in 140 characters, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, her Instagram would be incredible. And <laughs> I, would, I would trade all the books just for her Instagram feed to know what it would look like what filtered um, <laughs> oh my god uh, but um but no i mean uh in, in a modern context it would be interesting to see uh, as as much more agency as you know like she would have as an individual you know i i also think she would be a little bit bummed out by the coarseness of modern discourse things seem to be summed up in in tweets and and sound bites and um good versus evil, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, our politics or, you know, like entertainment or just uh, maybe the modern U.S. worldview. <laughs> well, even this podcast is giving a middle finger to the haters. Yeah. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't we give them an empathetic hug? 
Oh, they just didn't get enough love as a child. Yeah, it's uh, they are impoverished by the fact that they don't appreciate Austin, and we should, at worst, maybe you know, give them the raspberries, not a not a not a full middle finger. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I just got spittle all over this uh, mic. No, but um, I yeah, I I think uh, after this this episode is done, um, we're gonna have to ask uh, Kristen to go back and edit the opening so that it's an empathetic bro hug, man yeah. hug, bear hug to all of those haters. And we'll look them in the face and say, you were wrong, but I still love you. I, I think that is going to be key. And, uh, you know, we're, if, we're breaking down walls here. I if, love it. If this is not edited into the top of the podcast, you'll know that Kristen hates people <laughs> like austin i mean just for the passion um this is yeah she didn't she didn't learn anything no so i guess we've like spoken for quite a while about all of those uh first questions we probably should get into the meat and potatoes I mean, oh god zombie puns meat yeah. um with uh with this movie pride and prejudice and zombies I know that Kristen had provided some questions, being the professional she is, um, and uh, being, you know, the utter slob I am. I'm not sure whether to just like jump in this bad boy and take it off road, or to to go through. Um, I was thinking what I what I actually might do, uh, if you're cool with it, um, is just talk over some of the stats and kind of like uh, interesting things background about uh, pride and prejudice and zombies that sounds great uh, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, this movie and I will say going forward here and I should have said this at the beginning that if you haven't seen the movie you might want to stop and see the movie unless you're really on the fence about whether to see it or not in which case I don't know uh, Kevin you might disagree with me I would say watch it. it it's worth watching would you agree um uh, i have a little different take mine would be if you have the opportunity <laughs> to watch any other movie on earth watch it instead and if the <laughs> only movie that's left on earth is pride and prejudice and zombies then the living will envy the dead <laughs> you have oh, better in your time um but i'm, I'm gonna uh, be a little more more um what is it, equitable, like on the fence uh, yeah. about the the whole situation. Um, it was one of these things where I, I didn't remember it fondly. And going into the movie, uh, I was like, oh, I don't want to watch this again. Or, you know, like when I first saw the trailer, I was like, oh, Jesus. But then when you're in the movie, I actually found it very entertaining. And we can kind of like talk through some of our reactions to that. But Upon rewatching, I actually <laughs> like it better than I remembered. And maybe part of it is I'm just a little too close to it. Um, I'm going to back up a little. So Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, um, it was uh, based on, wait, let me back up here. Uh, it is, was based on a novel, it, it made the bestseller list in, uh, I think, 2009. Seth Graham Smith was the author. And so there was actually quite a window between the writing of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, uh, for which, you know, like, 
he also gave credit to Austin because, I mean, let's face it, uh, the main thing that he did was add zombies to it. Um, I haven't actually read the book. Have you, Kevin? I have not read it, no. Um, so I, I wasn't quite sure going into it, you know, like how faithful an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies uh, the movie would be. And I wasn't sure how closely Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was to the source material. Now, prior to watching the movie, I, of course, knew the, the source material, and it diverges, uh, certainly, just by virtue of the fact that it's added in this edition with the, the horror element. But it, it does it in some interesting ways that, that I think we're going to discuss a little bit here. When the movie came out, it came out on Super Bowl weekend in 2016. And uh, if you look online, it actually, I, I looked up to kind of see uh, how much it was made for and how much it made at the box office. So it came out on Super Bowl weekend on um, kind of the same weekend, an adaptation of a Nicholas Sparks book uh, called The Choice, which, you know, may have pulled. <laughs> some of the the female viewers for that weekend it lost to uh it, it uh started on its opening weekend uh it was number six at the box office and number one was actually a holdout from previous weekends kung fu panda three now i don't know a lot about movies but i feel like opening at number six is not good no, and it wasn't. It uh, it did not stay in theaters for very long at all. Uh, in fact, um, it, you know, like it was noted as one of the biggest uh, flops of 2016 with a budget of 28 million dollars. It made a bit over um, almost uh, 11 million domestic and uh, a little over five million overseas. All of this is is. Uh, according to, you know, like some stats I pulled off the web. So uh, if they're off base, uh, I'm sure somebody will write in in the comments. Currently, as of the time that we're recording, the movie itself has a 2.5 out of 5 on Screen Rant, a 45% on Metacritic. Rotten Tomatoes critics gave it a 43%. Audiences gave it a 45%. And IMDb rates it as uh, 5.8 out of 10. Um, so on all of these, it's hovering around the middle, rotten, <laughs> uh, not not a must see. I, I feel like the world has not been kind to this movie and I, I want to be a little kinder to I, it, but but I, I'll, I'll let you I'll let you you jump into to things a little bit. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, no initial I, questions. I think you did a great job, and I think it's good to know um, some of that background about how it was received, both artistically and commercially. So we're talking about a movie here that was not well loved, um, either by critics or by moviegoers, and um, you know maybe there's something that they missed that that you're gonna highlight here. You know, yeah. someone who knows a little bit more Austin. Now I'm gonna Listen, tell you, I loved Kung Fu Panda three as well. So I mean, don't look at me. Yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, I have not seen Kung Fu Kung Fu Panda three myself, but 
I can imagine that the action scenes in it are better than what was in zombies. <laughs> um, I'm not going to debate you on that either. You know, like you hit the nail on the head. And I, <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the, you know, if, if listeners haven't seen the movie, so it starts off uh, mirroring Pride and Prejudice, the book, um, relatively closely, other than this uh, initial scene with Darcy killing zombies that is sort of added prior to the credit scene. And then it sort of just devolves into something completely different around the halfway point um, where you get into this completely alternative version of things with a different kind of Wickham and a war with zombies. So Mm -hmm. um, my understanding from Kristen is that in the book, it it follows the Austin story more closely where the zombies are kind of interspersed um, and it doesn't it doesn't have this kind of narrative, um, you know, right turn where it goes somewhere completely different from where Austin Austin was heading. So um, I won't spoil uh, everything that happens in case someone wants to watch it, but um, I will say that it's ultimately ended up kind of a pastiche of different genres. So you have a little bit of, you know, Austin, you have like a war movie, a horror movie, um, all kind of, you know, glommed together in, in this, this story that's been brought to the screen. Well, and I'm not going to say that it doesn't work, but you, I mean, like you can you can debate me on that too. Uh, I mean, like that's what this this medium's for, right? But I actually, upon rewatching, like how they they fit the action in. Um, yes, let's 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 back up a little and say there definitely is a kind of a act one, act two part to it. And, you know, like a major departure at the, the midsection that kind of like sends it spiraling into its final act. But it's also one of these movies that uh, because of the mashup that was forced on it by the, the source material, which as I understand is basically just Pride and Prejudice with, you know, like zombies peppered in here and there that I I kind of like how they use the action. And if you're going to a horror movie, you expect a big climax, you know, like a a big action scene climax at the end and and, uh, some some payoffs for this artifice, this uh, setup that you've you've been given. Having not read the novel Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, uh, I looked up some comparisons of the two there actually was a one that i thought was uh kind of interesting on a website called snarktheater.com uh where they had posited that uh the movie departed from the book but that's a good thing um because the the movie gives our ladies uh especially jane and lizzie a little bit more agency that you know like if you're doing a straight adaptation of Austin, there's a society with um, forces kind of beyond their control, you know, like it is important that Mrs. Bennett, you know, like get her daughters married off. In this scenario, marrying her daughters off kind of should not be uh, really on the forefront of her mind. They should be worried about survival. Yeah, at one point in the um, in the beginning of the movie, Charles Dance, I believe, who's playing um, Mr. Bennett. Oh, yes, um, good old Tywin Lannister himself, isn't he? Exactly, yeah. He um, uh, he says, you know, um, I'm not worried about their 
you know, survival in the future. I'm worried about them, you know, making it through the next day well, and uh, this, when they're talking about you know. Oh, and you, sorry to interrupt. This kind of like undermines Mrs. Bennett. She seems a lot more frivolous uh, than, than she does in the novel because of that. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I, I can see the point uh, of the take that you brought up where this gives them more agency um, and that the concerns are, are more immediate and that they have to deal with the zombie issue. Um, so I could see a world where this structure worked, but to me, um, it's just not this world. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not, it's not this world. I, I can hope every day, but um, I just thought that all parts of it that were mixed together didn't work. And so the big question as a starting point from Kristen and Maggie on this was thumbs up or thumbs down. And so I'd have to go thumbs down with the major reason being, I just felt like it was too all over the place because they tried to mash up so many things that none of it quite worked. I'm really conflicted on whether to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Like I feel kind of like in the middle, like uh, some of these, these critiques, you know, like 45 to, to 55% uh, here just because it was trying to be all things to all people, right? It was trying to get a lot of the, they wanted men to come to, to Austin. And I think trying to trick maybe a fanboy type of, of person. I, I believe that the trailer was uh, released at the San Diego Comic-Con. Um, I'm sure that somebody will like come in and, and tell me if I'm wrong here. But that kind of shows you some of their aim during the marketing, which was pretty extensive. I, I, I agree with that fanboy element that they were trying to serve. Um, the author also wrote Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, uh, no, which is the God. same idea. It's, it's, to me, this completely idiotic um, idea of, wouldn't it be awesome if we did this and this together? Um, and they expect, you know, some um, person to be like, yeah, I really love the fact that Abraham Lincoln's doing this or that, even though Abraham Lincoln was already amazing on his own. Or, you know, there's people that buy paintings of, you know, like grizzly bears with lasers on them or something. Or Obama riding a T-Rex and like firing a gun. Exactly. Yeah. It's just lazy, dumb, you know, uh, combinations of uh, two things that don't fit together and like wouldn't it be amazing if they were together but there is sometimes a reason why they don't fit together because they don't make sense <laughs> well i in in the spirit of like kind of keeping this this debate going i'm gonna give it a thumbs up or at least one thumb up one thumb down you know if we're doing the two thumbs up two thumbs down kind of like siskel and Ebert thing um I'm going to ask Maggie to break but, uh, your thumbs. <laughs> uh, just, just because uh, I want to keep this, this train going, but um, I think you can see where they were trying to, to drag, for lack of a better word, geeks, into watching a, a Pride and Prejudice movie uh, by casting uh, Lena Hetty, Matt Smith, um, Charles Dance. I mean, if you're not familiar with these names uh you probably aren't familiar with doctor who or um or game of thrones because uh, that's that's right where they're coming from now interestingly uh originally uh natalie portman was going to be cast as lizzie and she had other obligations so she ended up being involved with production 
somehow, you know, like bankrolling it to a certain extent, which I don't know, uh, Kevin, it might change your opinion of Natalie Portman. <laughs> well, she was smart enough to have other obligations, which uh, <laughs> a pressing obligation that would cause me to avoid being in this film would be I had lunch plans at parties. Um, <laughs> but the fact that she put any money behind it means that she obviously has terrible financial advisors. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just, just for the for the sake of uh, getting back to the question, I guess for the sake of keeping our our discussion alive, um, and also because I really want to eat into the the meat of both what what I liked and didn't, I'm gonna give it a thumbs up and say you know like I think that while the action can be overpowering of the Austin, and that's what I think is a drawback, they did try, and you can see a real effort here in places, to use the action to enhance some of the kind of emotions going on. I th- I think and, and for that reason, I think that's interesting. And I think that leads into you know one of the other questions we had, and, and the one part of the movie that I liked. Um, so one of the other questions is, what did we think of the portrayals of uh, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy? The guy who was Mr. Darcy was fine other than he had a weird gravelly voice which um <laughs> was distracting like he had just had a bunch of milk and it was stuck in his throat or something <laughs> um uh i thought the uh, actress i think it was maybe lily james who was elizabeth was by far the best in it i thought she did a good job but they have the the first proposal scene is is included in this um, adaptation right. And I think that is the one area where the action melds with the story in a way that worked for me. So exactly as what you kind of raised before as, as, as action kind of highlighting the story and working with it, that was the only time it really did that for me. Um, they have this proposal scene. Um, and in addition to this verbal sparring that's going on in, in, in the book, in, in the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies version, there's also physical sparring. So all the training that they've done to be able to fight zombies comes into play as they're actually, you know, kind of battling each other and um, talking about this proposal. And, and so that worked for me. It was playful, but still had, you know, elements of, of the action to it and the humor. Um, and, and it worked, unlike, for me, some of the other scenes. So I don't, I don't know what you thought about those characters and, and about that scene in particular. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that a little. So when it comes to, when it comes to Lizzie and Darcy... I wasn't really familiar with these, the the actor or actress. Um, I thought that they did a, a passable job. I find them tolerable, um, <laughs> but uh, their their history, you know, what what else they had been in, and uh, found that Sam Riley, the guy who plays Darcy, the actor who plays Darcy, uh, has also been in Maleficent, and Lily James has been in Cinderella. These are both, you know know some of these live action disney movies the most recent of which has been beauty and the beast that uh hit theater so i you know like they well known they were before this but it definitely looks like it it's just been another notch in their career i felt like sam riley the whole time was doing his damnedest to do a colin firth impression you know like yeah um, absolutely I kind of have mixed feelings about the portrayal of Darcy because, okay, so for this version, instead of being, you know, like uh, set against the the backdrop of um, warring with France or something, you know, like zombies kind of take the place of an impending threat, 
you know, like uh, the garrison that is stationed that that Wickham is a part of um, mm-hmm. is to fight zombies, you know, like not Napoleonic French. And it turns out that both Darcy and Bingley, they have like military ranks. It's like kind of interesting and adds, but kind of also is a weird choice. Yeah, the action elements of, of Darcy and him being this expert zombie killer and this kind of military focus. Um, and he also has sort of a policeman sort of element to him as he you know right. invents, investigates these places, uh, muddles that character. Oh, well, I mean, I on the one hand, I think it's like kind of interesting in terms of the story. On the other hand, if you listen to Kristen's analysis of who Darcy is, he doesn't have the same social phobias that um, I think that she is not not projected onto him. I think it's it's there if you you're reading the text. Yeah, this is um, a more swashbuckling kind of yeah, absolutely. Darcy, rather than having having those social anxiety kind of elements that that, that may be a part of his character in the actual text. Yeah, exactly. I, um, Though I do think that there were some interesting things about Darcy in this version. You know, like they start off with Netherfield's slaying, you know, like uh, there there apparently was a just like a mass incident at Netherfield that happens during a whist game. And like, actually, when I heard that, like, I thought that was kind of charming, just like blending the two. And it kind of like sets the tone for the movie. You got to like, your tongue is like super in your cheek right now. But as competent as it makes Darcy out to be, because, you know, like he sees the hole in the physician's examination of him as he's like kind of creeping into Netherfield through the sewer grate, or I don't know exactly how he's getting in through some tunnel because uh, they've, they've holed themselves up there. So, you know, like it shows that he knows what he's doing and he's kind of a badass, but he also screws up, right? He, uh, he doesn't investigate further other parts of the house upstairs. And later on in the movie, he even says, I think it's when Jane is ill that he doesn't want it to turn into another Netherfield. So like there's like a kind of a haunted element to his character that is added by doing that. But there are problems with the portrayal because kind of like, standing there with Lizzie and he's, you know, like ready to pull the trigger and like kill her because she might have been infected. You know, it's hard to come back from you try to kill my sister. Yeah, it's interesting. It's such a, you know, in your face kind of violent potential act that he was considering that you're right. It, it does make it harder to be like, oh, he's still a good guy. He was going to stab my sister in the face because he was a little bit worried um, that, you know, she might be a zombie. But um, I mean, what did you think? Did the zombie element help the story along or, or did you actually find it detracting? I mean, it sounds like you had at least some scenes where you felt like it worked together well, but were there, um, you know, was your overall impression that, that that merging of the two helped Pride and Prejudice and helped the zombie genre or that it, it sort of failed both? Uh, I think some of the characters get lost. I think th- I think they get a little bit lost um, and some of the emotions get lost now they they do try and i watched some of the um there are exclusives on the blu-ray uh where wait they have hold on a second is there a physical copy of the blu-ray i'm sitting here looking at the 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 blu-ray get out get out right now 
throw it off the balcony. No, she uh, she 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 bought a copy, and um, I watched it. And I watched some of the extras, but in there, I was a little bit heartened. Where you know, like you have director Burr Steers and some of the the uh, other people involved with the production saying, "Look, the source material, Pride and Prejudice, is classic. It's been adapted so many times." We knew we could like lean hard into that, and it would be great. We just had to figure out how much we wanted to amp up or dial it back on the zombies, right? And so that mindset made me a little bit more amenable to their knowing what their aim was, and you know, like having dialogue that is lifted completely from the novel, or you know, like kind of tweaked in a in a fun way so that it's like an in-joke that the the writer or director is having with the audience if the audience is clever enough to know that it's there kind of adds to it right yeah Kristen even noticed at the end um so in the the second proposal where darcy's successful they actually use some um language from persuasion so he says i'm you know uh half in anguish half in hope um, and so they, they pepper in other Austin things to try to uh, sort of have it there. And I mean, yeah, I, I guess I would say my take on it was it's nice that they have the dialogue and these elements of, of the original work for you to kind of pick up on. But the movie felt like it was so rushed and, and sort of stuffed together that it was relying entirely on the goodwill you already had towards those characters and your understanding of the story for any of it to make sense. Uh, I felt like if you hadn't read Pride and Prejudice and you watched that movie, you wouldn't understand why anyone was doing anything and that the characters' interactions wouldn't make a, a ton of sense. And so you have these kind of Easter eggs of dialogue peppered through for the the fans who can sort of pick up on that. But I don't know that any emotional beats of the actual movie on its own would have landed um, if you weren't already invested in those characters. I would be interested if there's like a supercut, right? Fans get, get on it. Well, I don't know if there's any like fans of this movie that would care enough to do this. But, you know, like if there's a supercut of this movie of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies without Zombies... You know, you know what yeah. I mean? Where they, they like dial it back so that it's just pride and prejudice. And like every so often somebody says some weird thing that has no like relevance to the actual plot of the movie. Like, I don't know if it completely breaks down without the zombies in this version. But I, I thought that the way they, they, they did cram a lot into the movie. Um, like you said, there's a great kind of like pop-up book uh, shadow play uh, where where Charles Dance talks over the history and, you know, like, um, there's some, actually some really interesting stuff in there that I'd, I'd like to talk about a little um, if we have a time to get to it. There's a lot of world building that you need to do to set this ridiculous scene. And I thought that the movie did pretty well at setting that scene and, like, doing a lot with, like, a very little time. It's only got a, a runtime of an hour and 48 minutes. In fact, one of the trivia things that I'd seen was like Lena Headey appears more than 30 minutes into the film. Um, she's playing Lady Catherine de Bourgh and only gets about six minutes of screen time in the whole movie. I mean, like she shows up in a kind of a, I don't if people have seen Inglorious Bastards, Hugo Stieglitz kind of moment where like, it's just kind of like, 
Lady Catherine de Berg. And like, it, it, it's pretty comedic. I laughed out loud the first time I saw that part. But she's like a badass that kind of steals every scene that she's in. It made me change my opinion to a certain extent about Lady Catherine de Berg. Well, um, I, I can't believe it was that short because it felt like a lifetime. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, you have characters who are interesting, but they don't have a lot of screen time um, because they're trying to cover so much ground um, that no one really gets a fair shake by my you know, That's fair. Uh, take on it. And you mentioned the pop-up book at the beginning, which runs through the, the history of, of how England got to this point with the, the zombie infestation. So does that world building for you in the start? You, you said there were some elements in there that were particularly interesting to you? Well, yeah. I mean, like, first of all, I've been talking for a while and I feel like I need to give you a chance. Uh, how, how did you feel about it? I mean, like the second part of the question that Kristen posed to us, which which parts of the original story do you like most? Would you say like the sparring, the proposal? Is that what you were? I, I think the the proposal scene is um, the you know first proposal is one of the best scenes in the book, um, and so I was glad they kept that. And again, I think that was the highlight of the movie. There are a lot of other scenes that I like in the book that were not there, and I think that's because I like so much of the comedy in Pride and Prejudice. And as you were saying, there are a lot of characters that are just kind of cut out or um, not differentiated or given real lines or interactions. And in the book, there are all these funny interactions that you have between these characters um, that they just didn't have time to include in the, in the movie or, or, or the inclination. Um, I think the only comedic character they really did well by was Mr. Collins, um, who you oh, said, Matt Smith. <laughs> was it was in there um he's a little bit different obviously than the real one but um uh, they at least tried to have him bring the comedy so i don't know what you thought about uh matt smith oh my gosh okay so we differ on this one too oh, okay you uh, hated matt smith uh i didn't hate him per se um i well let me um let me back up i i think i'm right there with you like one of the best elements of the film is where they have verbal sparring you know something that austin is great at right this this uh clever verbal sparring and they uh overlay those scenes with actual sparring in fact like they even switch up the order of operations to a certain point like catherine de Berg shows up and challenges lizzie so much earlier in this version than she does in austin's novel but that's because they wanted that scene in there. I like how they put these these uh, two elements next to each other. I think that that works. The you know like mod squad, you know like uh, waltzing into Netherfields to slay kind of thing, is less effective than when they're having fight scenes. Like actually, the fight scenes between individuals was more interesting than any fight scene with any zombie. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, zombies and, uh, are just cannon fodder, so it's it's just uh, inherently uninteresting to watch like hordes of them being cut down. Or and they do a lot of POV shots uh, from zombies if there is a one-on-one -on -one kind of fight where the camera takes the POV of the zombie and you just have someone slap raspberry jam on the on the lens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I actually um, we can talk about the zombies themselves a little bit too because they're made less threatening for some plot elements in the movie 
than than maybe your typical zombie because there are stages of zombieism in this. Um, yeah, there, there's your kind of rational zombie, and then your um, your more traditional full-on bloodless zombie who's just running wild, um, trying to eat brains. Yeah, before we get get to um, the Saint Lazarus crowd that um, Wickham introduces us to, I, I wanted to to me- talk a little bit about that that um, pop up book uh, that you'd asked me about. So I thought it was interesting. Oh. There were weird, but also like kind of telling or interesting choices um, in that America uh, <laughs> is the source of the plague, which I th- I thought was interesting. You know, like America doesn't really get a mention um, other than like there's no mention of revolution to be the center of the story. But the that new world is strike me at the time. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting. And like an interesting historical implication, the Second Battle of Kent, which is supposed to be the uh, reason uh, the Second Battle of Kent ends this craziness where everybody is hidden behind the Grand Barrier and the Royal Canal um, and people start moving back out to the countryside. Um, So it's kind of nice that they at least tried to address the fact why people would be trying to return to their normal lives because it does seem a little crazy why wouldn't you like stay behind the barrier yeah i think they um the pop-up book one just artistically was was well done i thought the the way the drawings were structured and the way they flipped through was kind of fun and had an interesting element to it um and you know anytime you have charles uh, dance narrating you're going to have a good time with that kind of gravitas and spooky British voice. But I, I think you're right. That that was a good start to the movie because it set up why they would be here. Because otherwise, if you know, you're in this existential battle sur- for survival, why are people setting up in these estates again? Um, and so they at least tried to help you understand why the world was the way it, it was in the film um, without spending a, a ton of time on it. Without getting too far off on the tangent, the, the, one of the other notable things about that that opening scene is they mention something they call back to later. Again, I, I think that this movie does fairly well on like setup and payoff that people took up martial arts and, and maybe traveled abroad to learn martial arts. So um, it was Japan for the wealthy and China for the wise which I don't know what the heck that's supposed to mean, right? Except there's not a ton of talk about wealth in this version or wealth disparity. Um, the, Bennett, the Bennetts themselves look better off than I would have suspected. Yeah, agree? I, I think that that's, that's true. You don't get as much of a sense of the disparities. And in fact, the only time it really comes up is the conversation between... Um, Elizabeth and the Bennett sisters um, in the parlor um, where they use that martial arts training as um, an indicator of that class difference. So you have uh, the the Bennett sisters who speak Japanese because they went to Japan for their training where the wealthy went, um, whereas Elizabeth went to China because they have less money and um, perhaps are wiser in some ways. And um, so you have that that oh, yeah, element yeah, of the world mean, brought uh, in. Isn't it uh, Bingley's? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Did I say Bennett sisters? It's Bingley sisters, yeah. 
yeah yeah no um and so like i i kind of felt like the the class thing and i understand to a certain extent why they might do this for american audiences because i don't want to get too political here i think um american audiences see race more than they do class does that make sense yeah I think, or, or well i think that's um, my understanding is um is that yes that british people seem to believe that uh, americans are are far more concerned with race whereas british people are more concerned with class um that that you know like kind of making a either racial or geographical distinction between where people go to study, you know, like, and tying that to class is, is one of the only elements where that gets pulled into the, the movie. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. That's the only time I can really think of where that's, that's brought up um, in, in a meaningful way. And I mean, I, they kind of do a thing, um, at the ball where uh, Mrs. Bennett, how wealthy uh, Darcy is, uh, which is uh, pretty similar to um, to to the novel, but I, I feel like there's less weight put on that. That some of the idea, some of the ideas, like when it comes to all of the zombie killing and whatnot, kind of like overshadow some of the deeper issues and like again we get back to mrs bennett just looks foolish no and i, I think um that to me is why the the zombies detract from pride and prejudice is it it crowds out a lot of the interactions it crowds out a lot of the um, motivations for characters and they've kept these kind of vestigial scenes in sometimes where the motivations make less sense if you've bought into the zombie world That's but i fair. also want to know I, I also want to return to Matt Smith about why you. Uh, well, actually, tell me a little bit. Try and try and sell me on Matt's portrayal here because I wasn't enamored with it, but maybe I'm not thinking about it the right way. So I would just say I was happy to have someone who um, was lively in it. Um, <laughs> the movie is very dour, um, and so yeah, no, that's a good point. So he's hamming it up, you know. Oh uh, yeah, he's just chewing on the scenery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's um, he's you know shooting for the rafters on on everything, and <laughs> it, it's silly, but it was a nice kind of break for me from what was otherwise dour in a, in a lot of times. And, and so, as I was saying, you miss a lot of the comedy in the actual Pride and Prejudice story in this version. So when I had any of it in there, um, even if it was a little hammy, um, I could appreciate it. See, for me, and part of the reason that I didn't like it was it was just too hammy. Now, I will say that I think the emotions, the romance kind of gets lost in this version because there is so much action and violence that it kind of overpowers it. In fact, like, and and maybe this is a controversial statement, um, I think that Lizzie, despite, you know, like being more feminist, having more agency in this, is less interesting than she is in the book. Like, you know, like her her weapon is supposed to be her wit, Right. In this one, our weapon is like a, a sword or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, um, and so, go for it. That character. That character. You're right. Um, you know, all all the things you might love about Elizabeth Bennet in the book. If you didn't know who she was in this movie, I don't know what you would pick up on about her, other than that she's yeah good at hitting zombies with a sword or throwing an axe into their heads. You know, her motivations and her character. You're right. They're just less strong. And and so you know like. 
it kind of goes to what we were saying earlier about Austin's sensibilities where, you know, like things can be subtle and they can be muted. And like, we're just going to take a moment and Collins is still comedic in the book, right? But he's yeah. comedic because he's a buffoon, but he still seems like he could be a real person. I can't mm -hmm. say that about Matt Smith. And I know we're splitting hairs because we're talking about a movie where the dead rise from the grave, right? But, but I just like things about about that that like kind of seemed seemed weird to me. Now I will say that I finally understand why like Collins thinks that Lady Catherine the Bird is awesome <laughs> because she's a friggin' bamf in this. Like in the in the book, you know, like she's wealthy and we're supposed to be impressed by her in the same way, I guess, that, you know, Collins kind of grovels to her. In this one, I the wealth seems like an afterthought to how cool she is. And so like I actually liked that part and it makes but it but it also kind of then detracts from Collins being kind of a simpering buffoon because you can see more reason for him being so enamored of, of Catherine de Berg. I mean or maybe that's just me you know but yeah that's that's kind of how I I, I felt like um they he comes off as like more of a bore in this not b-o-r-e but b-o-o-r well I think you know, like, um... he's just like straight up super rude at the dinner where he like first wants to uh be engaged to Jane and then is like such a dick i mean like and i know that that he was more interested in jane initially but he doesn't come off quite as rude i didn't unless i'm remembering incorrectly i think that's fair um you know my read on him is is more bumbling than um than rude in the actual <laughs> in the actual um novel um whereas he is a little bit more straightforward and and just being rude in, in the pride and perish and zombies version but Again, I'll still allow it for that ray of sunshine in what otherwise was such a, a grim movie where most of the That's characters, fair. you know, just didn't have a sense of humor. So listen, uh, you you didn't you didn't uh really like it, so I'm not going to, you know, like blot out your ray of sunshine and yeah. just turn it into like a the the zombie graveyard. Don't don't rain on my Matt Smith parade and this <laughs> the small shrine I've put together for him. Well, and you mentioned, um, you know, I think we've talked about a lot of the, the elements of this book in terms of or this film, in terms of how it relates to the book, what works, what doesn't, you know, what, what elements of, of merging this together uh, made the film a success and what didn't. And if we could change tracks just for a second to say just on a pure zombie level, um, that was something you mentioned before about the zombies in this. There are a lot of takes on zombies um, in uh, oh, right, yeah. we talked different about media. Yeah, I mean, what did what did you think of the the characteristics of the zombies here? We said that they had some reason, and then they would kind of turn into um, more traditional zombie hordes. Did that work for you as a as a concept? Um, did the zombies work for you as a kind of overarching villain in the story? Huh. Well, so uh, to go into a little bit more background, um, I in in college, my freshman seminar, I was a German major. And my freshman seminar was horror film in Weimar, Germany, which is like probably the coolest sounding course <laughs> I've ever taken. Um, but we talked a lot about horror films. 
we didn't talk too much about zombies as kind of like a horror creature as much mm-hmm. as we did, you know, like a vampire or, you know, like a Frankensteinian Dr. Jekyll, uh, Mr. Hyde creation, you know, like you've created a monster uh, or the Wolfman or something like that, where, you know, like there's this body horror. The the most interesting analyses of monsters that um, I picked up from that course and just uh, cultural osmosis is the idea of monsters, you know, like a, it's, a, it's this like metaphor for sex or sexual transgression. This is a sexy part of the podcast, by the way. Um, I've got my candles going. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like zombies uh, have been used in that way to like kind of talk about they, they first of all they're a more modern horror creature they like one of the the first touchstones of uh, the genre has got to be a 68 George Romero classic Night of the Living Dead um and in that one they were talking a lot about race you know you really have to watch it to the end to like kind of see uh what what's going on there but zombies have been used to talk about like race, and I imagine to yeah, talk I about zombies... you know, like the AIDS epidemic, to talk about American consumerism. So I don't know how well they work for this setting necessarily, because they don't seem to have like a another role. You know, like they're not just zombies are seldom just zombies. They're they're a metaphor for something else. Does that make sense? I, I agree completely. I mean, I, I think because zombies are a horde, they're not a, a monster that is sort of effective just on its own. It's it is this metaphor for this sort of larger element in society or something that you're trying to say. And I don't think the movie necessarily had an idea of what those zombies represented in Pride and Predators and Zombies, other than wouldn't it be cool if we had zombies? Right. I mean, like it's kind of the cool Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter, like we're doing something, but we don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> kind of mentality. I think uh, that was that the tagline said, for the movie. Yeah, exactly. Actually, the tagline for this movie is slay with pride, kill with prejudice, which makes me throw up in my mouth a little. <laughs> but, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, that leads me to think, what would a good metaphor have been? Is there something that we can point to in... Austin's England or time period or uh, society that the zombies could have represented. I mean, like, not that we would want to cram more into this movie, but I, I think it would have been more successful. The zombies were, let's say, a metaphor about uh, women's growing liberation or agency. And so let's say you'd have to change it around so that a world where you know, it doesn't start off with the Bene sisters being able to necessarily fight these these zombies and maybe the men are, are being more sort of patriarchal and saying, oh, women couldn't possibly, you know, do this. And, and there is seeing um, some sort of threat on that front. So I think if you tied it into a social change like that and, you know, obviously uh, you'd have to tweak that so it's not such hot garbage, but... Um, <laughs> Actually, you know, uh, but, yeah. that that you, you're, you're making a really good point here. And actually, the movie, to a certain extent, did try and do that. But I mean, like, I think it's fair to say that we both believe that that it didn't do it well enough. Yeah. Um, because this actually, and I hadn't thought about it earlier, gets back to one of my thoughts about Matt Smith's performance, or not his performance, but the way that Collins was changed. He asks 
and this is obviously going to be a departure from uh, Pride and Prejudice. He asks her to stop hunting or, you know, like put away her weapons or something. If if she comes with him. And this kind of, I think, diminishes Mr. Collins. It makes him look even stupider than he really is. And it, and it makes... Yeah, it's a weird... Um, you're right. It picks up on that element, but it does make him look dumb. And it's also weird because... Lady Catherine de Berg is is a woman and is also the most feared zombie fighter, and he has respect for her for that. So it does make him look foolish and also creates this kind of inconsistency in the treatment of women. Well, yeah, because like I, I think you could say that that the Bennett daughters, the Bennett sisters, uh, have a lot more agency in this version of Austin's England, partially because they they can prove themselves on on the battlefield, you know. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at the original Austin, Collins is, is kind of a fool, and, and, but we are meant to wonder when she rejects him initially if this wasn't a mistake, like no one else will ask you, you know? Yeah, whereas it's very clear in this version that, it's, that it would be a horrible mistake. Well, and, and he kind of suffers, in, uh, the character, I mean, um, not, not Matt Smith, he didn't write it. He kind of suffers from the same fate that Mrs. Bennett does, um, in that like marriage seems like something that could work against you in a zombie apocalypse, right? You might have to like behead your wife. Sorry, Kristen. Now that sounds great. I don't know what the <laughs> Oh wait, oh this is being recorded. <laughs> I would never behead you, Maggie. Just just eat me. <laughs> Um, uh, no, that, yeah, I think that's all fair. Um, the, the context that they've set up for this world of, of a zombie threat makes these comedic characters like Mr. Collins and, and Mrs. Bennett seem more frivolous and stupid, even beyond their kind of normal, um, characterization in the novel, just because they seem so blind to, to what's a more obvious threat of something eating their face. Did we, did we ever get back to the, um, the stages of zombies bit uh it plays into a little bit of this you know like it's definitely like a big part of the second act and the underlying mystery that they decided would be a good idea whatever to add to this movie and and kind of like adds to i in my opinion the whiplash at the end of the movie because the second act is just like very action heavy um and then we ended off with the austin double marriage kind of thing um there at the end where everything gets neatly tied up which christian mentioned um weird to me i think it does feel weird and uh i just want to say christian mentioned that that double marriage is something they took from the bbc adaptation with firth and uh ely oh uh, yeah and andrew davies one so they're even they're already like grabbing from other adaptations and doing this but uh but i'm sorry you're saying how how you clear how you go from this basically action movie for the last third of it into the, into the double marriage. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. I think whiplash is, is a perfect way to put it. I, I, I was just like kind of noting that because I remember when I was watching it, it was like, Oh, suddenly being thrust back into the actual pride and prejudice feels really weird now that we've spent, you know, like such a long time in a zombie movie. Yeah, if you only watch the last third and let's say the characters had different names, 
um, and you cut it off right before the very, very end. Basically, um, if you change everything. <laughs> well, <I'm> just, <laughs> if, if the last third is is almost entirely a deviation from anything to do with the book, um, where it's just, you know, it's a, a full-on battle with zombies. So if yeah. you didn't know the names of those characters, you would never pick up that it was anything related to Pride and Prejudice if that was, you know, all you saw. So a full third of the movie has nothing to do with Pride and Prejudice and only has to do with um, zombie fights where it seems like they had maybe two smoke machines and 50 people to serve as zombies. <laughs> well, so let's talk a little bit about Act 2. I don't know how spoilery or not we're, we're being. You want to give a little bit of uh, background here? Uh, you know, like everything that, that happens with St. Lazarus or, you know, Wickham's character, because we haven't really dived into that. Uh, sure. So... Um... I think without getting too much into a spoiler, you know, in case anyone hasn't seen this and is is interested. And it's just chomping at the bit. Yeah, just <laughs> can't wait after our incredible <laughs> description of it. So you have, um, you know, you start out with the story with um, maybe something closer to your kind of traditional conception of zombies. Um, but every once in a while, you're coming across zombies that seem different. Um, they have their their... Uh, vocal faculties. Uh, they seem to be thinking. And so that's just a little bit of a mystery in the start. And then, you know, in the second act, you're brought to this church where where Wickham brings um, Elizabeth to see St. Lazarus and all of these zombies who are acting somewhat like normal people. And it turns out that the first stage of zombieism, if they have not eaten human brains yet, um, it kind of arrests the transition. And so they can eat pig brains to satisfy their cravings, but they don't go full zombie, if you will, unless they eat human brains. Yeah, they kind of get held in a stasis, right? Um, and for one of the climactic scenes, and again, this is, you know, like black hat, gray area Darcy, right? Um, kind of makes him a little bit more sinister, he just lets that transformation take hold of a whole group rather than than undoing Wickham's uh, machinations with Lydia it, it, through monetary means. He does it through zombitary means. <laughs> I haven't checked the zombie index today. What's the, what's the market up? <laughs> uh, no, and it's I, doing I, very well. Uh, I, I think you're right that it does make him a little bit more sinister, you know, when when you're presented with zombies that, um, you know, still have their former memories and seem somewhat civilized uh, for him to engineer their transformation into killing machines. Well, they're, they're basically like just humans with like really bad skin conditions, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Exa exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was a human with a really bad skin condition. <laughs> You're redeemable, but that's, that's exactly yeah. I didn't want some some Darcy to come and turn me into a murderer. <laughs> on that in that same vein, and what we were talking about before, where you know, like there's subtlety and I think less judgment in in Austin's portrayal of characters. Wickham is similarly pushed to the edges. You know, like he's transformed into quite literally the Antichrist. Yeah. In, the, in this movie. I mean, like, they, they use the word Antichrist, even. I'm not just, you know, pulling that out of a hat because it, it, it feels good. You know, like, Wickham's a, a bad guy in Pride and Prejudice, but he's not the literal the Antichrist. Antichrist. Yeah. You know, like, uh, he doesn't 
know the the four horsemen of the apocalypse face to face, which I I thought was a distracting weird element. I mean, it's kind of a cool visual, but I agree. Yeah, it it does not. Um, it is distracting. Doesn't really pay off into anything. Did you did you have any like thoughts on this version of Wickham? I thought it was interesting to see Jack Houston with a whole face because um, I'm used to him <laughs> on Boardwalk Boardwalk Empire where he's Richard Harrow. I thought he was fine. Didn't really resonate with me, um, particularly as a character. He seemed like, again, if you didn't know him from the book and you were just watching this fresh, you'd say, I don't really care about this person. And then there's this big twist and kind of reveal and that you're, you know, supposed to be sort of along with, but um, it just doesn't work for me in the movie as a standalone piece. He just seemed God, kind doesn't of like that feel the way with like a lot of the characters in this? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's. That, I mean, it's just yeah, they just don't resonate in the same way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's true. Also, I mean, like they they add a sinister element uh, to him. Uh, in addition, you know, like he's not just some ne'er do well. You know, like wastrel that you know, like spends up all his money and then like goes and preys on another young woman. It, it's it's a, a situation where he um, actually helped to speed along the elder Mister Darcy's demise. Yeah, they suggest that he infected him with the zombieism somehow. So I mean, like, kind of amping him up like that, I think, works against Austin. Yeah, Chris more of a Bond villain-esque kind of Wickham. And I guess I would say my my thumb stays firmly down in that I think it it doesn't do um, justice to Austin's characterizations. It sort of falls into the worst kind of cheap Hollywood characterizations um, for a lot of these characters and things that are supposed to be really awesome in this uh, just kind of fall flat because I'm you know, not a 12-year-old boy who's over the moon about the idea of zombies and you know fighting people in bonnets no it it totally does feel like um it's aimed at the the 12 year old boy market and people who like austin enough to over are willing to overlook this indiscretion (laughs) yeah if you're if you're such a super fan of austin that you don't mind that someone has produced something that is uh to me just a bad bad adaptation (laughs) i mean you know um it doesn't do the sort of straight adaptation well it doesn't do the action well it doesn't do the zombies well so um i mean i i'm I'm sticking with my thumb down are you after talking through it are you keeping that thumb up is it turning sideways at all i mean you can can like it i think it's i think it's always been kind of sideways but you disliked it for some of the reasons that i liked it i disliked it for some of the reasons that I can't see anyone being a super fan of this movie, but I also, it doesn't inspire hatred in me. Just, you know what I mean? Like I've, if I were to give it stars, you know, like with a great movie being five and a, and a movie I never wanted to see again being like a one, I probably put it middle of the road, you know, like I, I saw the movie. I, I didn't really learn anything. Nobody learned. Nobody laughed. <laughs> well, I mean, you laughed. I had a hearty yeah. chuckle on Matt Smith. Yeah, I um, it, it doesn't inspire hatred. I just think it was. I don't want to say a missed opportunity because I don't think the opportunity was even that good. Because again, it just plays into that lazy mashup. But um, 
I think even even by that standard, it didn't necessarily work for me. Um, yeah, I guess what we're saying is Hollywood is out of ideas and it's a zombie cannibalizing itself. I think that's the perfect metaphor. <laughs> Take that, Hollywood, you big wigs. Boom. I mean, I still went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy too. So, I mean, like Disney Marvel, keep going. But yeah, anything that's not this movie is great. Just this movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we have any final thoughts on uh, on Austin or or the movie or the podcast as our yeah, as our time comes to a close? I will say that before doing this podcast, I went out to see if other people had done podcasts on this movie, and it's pretty telling that I couldn't find one. They say that everyone who watched the movie and intended because... to do a podcast died mysteriously before. Oh, dang! Record. Somebody creeps up behind me. Right? Yeah, it's it's the curse of I mean, having to watch this movie. I I don't. It wasn't worth it then. I mean, like I thought it was like okay, but maybe it just wasn't worth it. If it um, leads to our inevitable deaths, then definitely not worth it. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I I guess that's about it, gentle listeners. I for the two of you that are still here. Thanks for listening, Maggie and Kristen. Yeah, exactly. Those are the only two. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for sticking around and, and listening to us chat through this. But uh, also thank you to Maggie and Kristen for giving us the opportunity to uh, talk about Austin and for uh, bringing more Austin into our lives.